0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard and this is the 494th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is David Bonanis, author, who is going to talk to us about the art of fairness, the power of decency in a world turned mean. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Welcome to the show, David.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you very much.
0: We call this first segment of the show Faruk Danarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. Can you start us off with basic information on what you mean when you say that the world has turned mean?
1: If you look at the newspapers or spend time on social media, not everybody is open-minded, friendly, and agreeable. Um, And if you look at uh, many of the uh, uh, projects that you strongly support, that you think are decent and fair, you will find that there's all sorts of obstruction uh, to it. Um, So the question is, is it legitimate obstruction? Is it like fair-minded people who happen to oppose each other? Or is there sort of a buildup of, uh, uh, of nastiness? Um, well, I think there's a little bit of both, uh, and it's certainly fairly strong. But what's nice, or what's useful, is that it's happened in the past before. This is not the only era when things were difficult. Think of the World Wars and uh, many other events. Um, so what I did in the book was try to look at how people have been able to navigate such difficult times in a successful way by following decent principles.
0: So can you expand a little uh, more on that? I think uh, there's a common perception, especially today, that if uh, – you want things to get done, you might have to be uh, ruthless and mean and kind of impose your will. Um, And I imagine that that is not what you found in uh, your examples in your book.
1: I I suppose you can look at it as sort of a a range. So uh, there's one approach, you know, the thing of the story of the famous nice guys. And you know that line, nice guys finish last. Uh, It's true. In fact, I have a chapter about it in the book. Um, If one's entirely nice and entirely agreeable, Uh, and and helps every single person you meet in whatever they want, you don't get anything done. You know, you'll help this person with that. You'll just have to be a walkover or a doormat. So the one extreme of being totally agreeable and soft, unfortunately, it doesn't work. And then there's the other extreme, uh, which you uh, touched on in your question, we are just a really hard-nosed, ruthless, pushing person. And we know that uh, often that works. There's lots of people in politics and the business who succeed that way. But it turns out, Well, actually, what I was wondering, is there a path in between? Is there a path where you're not like totally soft and walked over, but you can get effective things done in the hard, complex real world, not like as a quiet academic off in the corner, but in really tough competitive fields in the military and politics and uh, aviation and construction, things like that, where you take an intermediate path, not a total jerk, but not terribly soft. And it's really hard to follow that path, to find that path and to see how it works. So what I did in the book is I found five or ten people who managed to make that intermediate path work. And what are their lessons? How do they do it? I thought it would be interesting for everybody.
0: And how did you select uh, the people who you focused on in your book?
1: Uh, that uh, uh, That's a great question, because it took about as long as the actual writing. So I tried all sorts of people. I asked uh, my friends, you know, I, I looked around in history that I've read or studied or or indeed taught about myself. And I had a really large uh, shortlist, a, a, a large group of potential people. And I ended up just, I found that a lot of uh, things work well when it's just about a generation or two before the present day. Things that are right now, absolutely right up to the moment, uh, first of all, there's legal liability, and it's sometimes hard to get all the resources. Uh, powerful people terrify those around them. For example, imagine trying to get the true story about Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood 10 years ago. It'd be almost impossible. It took some really, really bold journalists uh, quite a lot of time to manage to get through the uh, barriers. So I didn't do absolutely up-to-the-minute stuff, but I didn't go back into, like, uh, older history, which, which I quite enjoy on a personal level, because uh, I wanted some really detailed sources. So a lot of the things I talk about took a place, say, one or two generations ago, uh, you, uh, recent enough that the insights are still relevant and similar to us, but uh, not so recent that we're uh, lost in the minutiae.
0: Excellent. So can you tell us um, a little bit about some of the specific individuals that you uh, studied in your book?
1: Well, one of the, uh, sure, in the first half of the book, I I take, um, I just go through some different fields, uh, aviation, surgery, construction, uh, big business, and I sort of contrast um, uh, people who succeeded quickly by being jerks, but, you know, if you succeed if you're really, really nasty, you can rise to the top quickly. Uh, you can make a quick, effective decisions. You have no compunction about firing people. You know, uh, bullying often works. You know, you can, yelling and screaming, people often uh, uh, put up with it. On the other hand, there's terrible problems that way. You don't get any loyalty. Uh, the moment you show a weakness, everybody really wants to knife you in the back or in the front and bring you down. You also don't really get much buy-in. and You don't get really good creative teams. If you've ever been uh, uh, hung out in an organization that's run by fear or terror, uh, people might do what they say, but they're not enthusiastic about it. They don't call that extra mile. Think of the difference between a, a military unit or a, a business division that where there's a good positive feel uh, versus one that uh, everybody's terrified. In the terrified one, nobody steps an inch out of line. You see that a little bit with the, uh, uh, the Russian army in Ukraine now. Uh, the Russian officers are not known for being gentle and humane individuals. But their troops uh, are never, or their junior officers, aren't going to volunteer and come up with uh, creative or uh, innovative uses of technology or or new tactics. People are terrified of that.
0: I will uh, try to avoid referencing any of my uh, former bosses on the show today. Um,
1: Except for the charming ones who illustrate our principles of intermediate perfection, exactly.
0: Yep, Uh, unfortunately, at least uh, in my career, uh, I've had more of the other kind (laughs) than uh, the uh, people who would make a good uh, focus for your book. So we have a lot more to talk about. Please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Mm -hmm. Catch up on your favorite SAU produced podcasts by going to KALA Radio at SoundCloud now.
2: At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media, we take great pride in bringing you the news that matters, that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text radio to 52886. And let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, What is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is David Badanis, author, and we're talking about his book, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World-Turned Mean. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off?
2: Okay, Brett. David, uh, you mentioned in the opening segment uh, you, you mentioned decent principles. Uh, could you give us uh, some of your uh, top two or three or four decent principles that uh, you were looking at? I
1: suppose the, the basic one that um, almost everybody would agree in is something like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would wish others to do unto you. Um, if you've ever been, um, uh, if, suppose you're standing in, the, in the, uh, the hallway in a hospital and somebody yells from behind you, get out of the way. If they're saying that because they want to get a coffee you think well that's totally unfair if i was in that position i wouldn't treat somebody else that badly if however they're pushing a trolley with somebody who's desperately ill and they absolutely absolutely have to get to an operating room then it's kind of acceptable for that because you would say okay if i was in that position i would do the same thing um so that applies to lots of other things think of people who are uh, fair when they uh they drive on the highway or you know on the street or people who are fair in business. Even sometimes if somebody's fired, nobody likes being fired in business. But sometimes if you reflect on it later, after the immediate upset is over, you think, you know what, I really wasn't performing that well, or I really wasn't a good fit. In fact, in my research for the book, I interviewed a a, very small number of people on Wall Street who are known actually for being decent. And they say that often they'll have discussions with people and say, it isn't so much that you're not a good fit here, but look, be honest, what would you really want to do? And they'll often say, you know what, this isn't my world. My parents wanted me to get this job or I was pushed over here or something like that. And often in a case like that, the person will even accept something as extreme as being fired because they would think, you know what, if they were stepping back and looking at the situation objectively, they would do the same thing. You know, the phrase uh, firm, but fair, I suppose that could have been the title for the book. Uh, there's a lot of people you don't even you don't necessarily love them. But you think, you know what, that's fair. Uh, and in fact, sometimes there's somebody who you actually feel great affection for, who's the sweetest person. But that—that's the last person you want to like. Maybe run an organization, a, a military mission behind enemy lines, or a new startup in a competitive field. Um, you don't want the jerk, but you don't want somebody who's only nice. As I was saying earlier, firm but fair will really get you pretty far.
0: Okay, Ed.
3: Yes, um, David. Uh... Um, relating to what you just spoke about for the person who, you know, kind of says, you know, this in a job that just says, you know, this is where the line is. I just can't go any farther. um, How does that play um, going forward? I mean, you can't put that on your resume uh, when you're interviewing for the next chapter of your life and say, well, I told these people what they could do with their job. So so mm-hmm. how does that play in the real world? Where does that get a person?
1: Oh, so I, I suppose if you're the person doing the firing, um, you know, in, a, in an economic downturn, you're, uh, you're not a bad person. If you fire somebody, you just don't have to be a jerk about it. You know, you can give them warning. You don't have to humiliate them by them carrying all their uh, stuff out in a cardboard box in the middle. Uh, you know, in in the middle of the workplace, if there's any chance, you give them advance warning, maybe help them to try to find another position. And if you're the person being fired, in a sense, if you really, if you promised a a, a certain work, Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. you have no good reason for not doing it, if there wasn't like a family illness or distraction, in that sense, it's sort of upon you uh, to have not done well. And hopefully one, you know, one can learn from that. Um, I suppose what it is, is in an infinite world, if there was enough resources for everybody to have great houses and great jobs and, you know. Uh, you know, they joke about this town where all the school children are smarter than average because all all the parents are convinced they're smarter than average. Um, you know, it, things would be easy, but there they're all, all, uh, always are trade-offs. I suppose the point is that you can minimize the friction and you can, there's all sorts of, uh, a number of trade-offs that aren't necessary. They don't have to take place. Um, very well, A good example is uh, in-house training. Sometimes somebody's not doing well at a job. And some people, sadly, you're quite right, maybe will never do good at, uh, do well at it. But there's other people who if you just calmly take them down and just really talk to them and understand what the blocks are, if you have the time, you can make them better. Again, the U.S. armed forces are, are not perfect. But repeatedly, there's people who've gone through the armed forces who said, you know what, so-and-so is a jerk, so-and-so is a time server. But this officer, he took the time and raised my game. And it's really impressive how that can happen even with the most unlikely of material
0: so if we are trying to be more decent as uh, as individuals what are two or three skills that we can try and uh, improve on
1: well one thing is to um if you feel that you well, you want to be like that but you don't quite know how one thing is to listen without ego listen putting your ego to the side now that doesn't mean getting rid of your ego, uh, then you're just a doormat and people crush past you, but it means taking the time to give a really 360 degree, just listening to the people around you. Then you have to make a quick, effective decision at the end, but really uh, make sure that you're a decent that way. Another thing that works well is to be generous, but don't be naive about it. I use the phrase, give, but audit. Uh, it's sort of like what Ronald Reagan used to say about uh, arms treaties, um, you know, we want to um, you know, be agreeable, we want to. We believe in trust, but we also believe in verification. So, one chapter in the book, I talk about the construction of the Empire State Building in New York, which for decades on end in the mid-20th century was the uh, uh, the tallest uh, building in the world. And it was constructed from beginning to end in something like 11 months. Um, I've had a uh, roof extension; that has <laughs> taken almost as long. And the guys who were running it, they weren't naive. In the New York construction trade, if you tell people I'm going to give and be generous, well, people will take advantage of you. Well, they did give, and they were generous. The salaries were about uh, twice as high as that on other uh, construction uh, of the time. It began just at the beginning of the Depression. But they also had teams of auditors who would clamber over the building just checking that, you know, people who were, if a foreman said uh, he's invoicing for uh, 20 workers, that the 20 workers were there and were there regularly through the day, that no tools went, went randomly missing. So, And the people who worked there say, you know what? We have a fair boss, and yeah, he, he's kind of street smart. We can't take uh, advantage of him. And the results can be astounding.
0: Well, and I find that fascinating. Um, my wife is a pastor, and it's really interesting um, among the clergy who uh, really want to uh, help people and be— uh, responsible with uh, the resources given to them, how they develop that street smart, um, that give-but-audit mindset um, when yeah, working it. with... Uh,
1: and it's, it's not being too hard. And sometimes the people who seem really cynical and uh, uh, sarcastic or whatever, they start out with a, a, a sweet, a good intention, but they were taking advantage of so much that they go to the opposite extreme. Uh, you know, there's a famous phrase, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. It's like, oh, I wanted to believe in the goodness of everybody, but I was attacked. So uh, so I then went to the other extreme. Now, there's another thing, which uh, a liberal is a conservative who's been unjustly accused of a crime. You can meet all sorts of people say, wow, the courts are too soft on everybody. But if somebody marches into their office and accuses them of something they totally didn't do, somebody has it in for them, well, they really, really want the right to an attorney and to procedures and all that sort of stuff. So the balance is in between. And if you jump to one extreme or the other, it's easy to get upset. So I, I, I admire what you're saying about uh, your wife and maybe her colleagues, what they were working at. You want to help people, but you have to be aware there's going to be time wasters and
2: stuff, and your own time is limited.
0: Okay, Rick.
2: David, my wife and I have spent a lot of time talking about uh, the meanness of the world and uh, being a student of history. I'm not a historian. I'm still learning of history. I've looked at the symbols that we see every day uh, through media, through the Internet. Uh, uh, and I just wonder, is tech, has technology helped make us meaner than the mean periods in, in uh, the past? Uh, that really is a great question.
1: I think what happens is whenever there's a new technology, um the, uh, the balanced way society has uh, been before is is broken open. So uh, when telephones first came in, people had to interrupt uh, what they were doing to answer the phone. Then when answering machines came in, it was slightly more regulated. And, oh, I, I see. I can put the answering machine on for a while while, uh, while, while I have dinner. And the same thing with newspapers. Uh, when steam printing presses got going, and you could have big city newspapers of hundreds of thousands, or maybe even millions of copies, at first they were really scurrilous and were tearing apart the American Republic. Um, uh, there were wild accusations, kind of like the the worst are the ones today. But after a while, uh, laws regulating them, not squashing them—that's the censorship of uh, you know the communist countries—but uh, allowing decent uh, libel laws and. Um, uh, uh, some sort of rules of evidence, uh, began to moderate that. Well, the same thing happened to even with something like radio. So in the second half of my book, I talk about what clearly was one of the worst uh, organizations in, in history, the, the German regime uh, from 1933 to 1945. And one of the uh, new technologies of the time, the brand new technology of the time, was radio, which worked almost like, it seemed like telepathy, these invisible waves go from one speaker right into the minds of millions of people unfiltered with no no one else getting in the way uh, you know across an entire nation or across an entire empire and at the beginning, that was really powerful. there's nothing to object um, to block it. Uh, so I focus on Joseph Goebbels, who was the uh, uh, the propaganda minister you know in Germany at that time, and he relished what he could do with this. he was a master he did all I, I described his techniques he was he was really proud of um uh, uh, using scurrilous and nicknames for people because they began to be associated with them in their mind. Uh, he repeated the uh, charges over and over. He would also uh, take charges that were demonstrably false and then quickly shift to another topic so people became confused about what was going on. So it took a while, but eventually uh, America and Britain um, uh, had much more, uh, so to say, reasonable and balanced approaches. Uh, a proof of that is... Uh, Germany, during World War II, as you know, had a terrific problem getting allies. Really, nobody really wanted to work with them. There were a handful of, of nasty fascists across Europe, but not that many. Well, the American and British armies were full of allies. In the Battle of Britain in 1940, the, uh, the RAF had Polish fighters and Czech fighters and South Africans and New Zealanders and Australians, a, a number of Americans and Canadians. They were uh, proud to, to help this organization. Uh, 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 Goebbels, I found in his diaries at one point he was complaining that the Italians were terrible allies, He said the Italians were terrible in battle, why were we allied with them? Well, it turned out about a tenth estimate, it's hard to tell uh, perhaps a tenth of the U.S. armored forces going across uh, Western Europe in 1944 and 1945 was Italian-American when they were motivated uh, and uh, treated fairly in a country rather than treated as like junior colleagues who were looked down on Terrific. Uh, Absolutely some of the best soldiers uh, uh, in in world history. So, um, if you're a terrible person, you can seem to be all booing and tough, and people who like that will be attracted to you. But you're not going to get many friends. You're not going to get allies. Certainly, you're not going to get lasting allies. Well, the strength of the U.S. at its best is uh, the famous thing about soft power people who want to help because they share those ideals.
3: Ed. Yeah. It strikes me as we're living in a particularly mean time right now in the the United States. Um, But it's different when you live through it as opposed to something you read about in a history book. And I think about, uh, you know, the meanest thing this country ever did was slavery. But we've also got a pretty sad record um, in terms of child labor, women's rights, uh, any number of things So, is my perspective skewed that I think it's worse now than in the past, or is that just something where the distance of time um, puts the other stuff farther in the background?
1: That's a very good point about the distance of time. Um, You know, uh, if you were living in some of those earlier eras, uh, if you couldn't pick who you're going to be, you're quite likely to be somebody in a really terrible position, you know, who No rights for decent salaries and was struggling with really bad water and couldn't afford decent food, you know, uh, uh, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, across much of America, that wasn't that far ago. And in some places, sadly, it it still continues. But you're right. uh, uh, We often forget about that. It's kind of taken for granted, and we see only the attractive bits. I suppose one bit of solace we can take is those terrible things that you mentioned, they came to an end. People would say, wow, you know, these white males were very sexist at a certain time, which is uh, true, but then it was groups within those, uh, males and females of all sorts of different backgrounds, who changed that and transformed it. So the U.S. did terrible things with slavery. The U.S. also ended it. Um, it'd be nice if it had never started. But given that it had, how impressive that there's a, a, a large system that can transform. Um, and so this, uh, the ending of slavery you know, was just led to a catastrophic civil war. But there are many other shifts which have been really uh, a quite really quite agreeable. They've worked well. As to how much we notice now, uh, uh, so as you can tell, I, I grew up in Chicago. I somewhat have my accent, but I lived in uh, uh, England for a long time. And the newspapers here describe America as being really angry. But when I go and visit relatives and friends all across the U.S., I feel I'm in a really prosperous country where most people are decent to each other. Uh, the average standard of living is terrific. Uh, housing for most people is much better than it was uh, two generations ago. Uh, Same with transport, same with uh, food, same with media. So the actual lived life can be okay. I think the reason we have to pay attention with uh, flaws, it's sort of like if you run your hand over a table and uh, suppose almost all the table is really smooth, but there's a tiny little uh, corner of it which has a, a sliver of wood that cuts into your finger. Well, clearly you're gonna notice that and you wanna be highly aware of it before you rub your hand over the table. So I think in the sense it's good that we notice potential flaws, but the actual lived life, the way if you don't hear uh, angry words that some people say and just look at how people live, it's not that bad.
0: It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So David, why do you think the art of fairness is relevant in today's world?
1: Uh, Many of us uh, uh, teach in Sunday school or we teach our children uh, things about being fair and decent. And then when the kids grow up, they say, Dad, Mom, is it really like that? Is the real world like that? And I love the idea of showing that this ideal, which many of us have, which many of us have in a church or in a synagogue or that we have at our home, that it actually can work. You need skills. You need street smarts. But you can make those positive ideals work. And you've got a lot of colleagues and people who are happy to help you along with it.
0: Uh, we got just about a minute longer. Rick, why do you think that this is relevant in today's world?
2: Because what David just said, I was taught to uh, be fair, kindness, uh, by my parents, and I went out in the world as a Pollyanna and uh, uh, was brutally taught street uh, smarts. But the core lessons are still there, and I think it's important, as David says, that we continue to teach our children uh, Golden Rule, how's that? That's mm-hmm.
0: gr- great, Ed. Why do you think that it's relevant in today's world? Because
3: perhaps it, uh, his book, uh, not that I've read it, but perhaps um, this can be a path forward. Um, and I am as 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 most other Americans should be. I'm deeply concerned about the future of democracy, um, and this overwhelming. Uh, amount of meanness that we see.
0: Point well taken. Well, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
1: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes our 494th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark zap Zaptel. My name is Brett Menard. We would like to thank our guest, David Bodanis, author of the book The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean for joining us today. Our history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We'd like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.